Hello, and welcome back to the White Pew podcast. This week's episode is another magazine episode. We've got three texts that discuss potential possibilities for arts education, um, which is like a really fancy, nice way of saying art school is bonkers. This is how it could be less bonkers and more comfortable for human people. Um, Because we speak at length and kind of on and on and on many times in different ways about the ways in which art school is like a weird place for weird people doing weird things like we did a couple months ago we did a episode of this podcast um about art school horror stories and it's just gab reading out loads of terrible things that people sent in about terrible things that happened to them in art schools some of them are funny some of them are genuinely awful um and i think if that's the way art schools are where's the wriggle room like what other ways could arts education be set up how else could we do this in a way that feels a bit more comfortable maybe a bit more productive maybe a bit more helpful and educational actually um because sometimes that odd bonkers nuts reaction is a good thing other times i don't know i just think certain things are handed down and no one ever questions them really so the three texts we've got are the first one is a 2019 text that gab wrote um, about a workshop we went to at Kochi Biennial in India. Um, it was a workshop run by an artist called Thomas Hirshhorn, and he runs these group crits where he asks participants to consider the energy of an artwork rather than the quality of an artwork. So if they respond talking purely on the level of energy, like personal subjective reaction, do they get like a body reaction to it? Um, And it's a really interesting text and I think she does a really good job of explaining things. You'll read all about it or listen all about it. Um, The second text is a review that Gabrielle wrote of a game called Art School. And it's like, yeah, a video game. How do you go about teaching? How do you go about learning about art through a video game? I guess you'll find out. The third text is uh, a review I wrote of a film. Um, by Anne Hortgutu, Anne Hortgutu, I think is how you say her name, actually, I, I'm not sure, um, apologies, um, and the film is called Manifesto, and it is a potentially fictional, potentially real life um, documentary, maybe, I still don't know, actually, and I don't want to know, um, set in an art school, and strange things happen, um, but they're good strange, it's like a kind of good fun mischief and magic i will that's all i'm going to say otherwise spoilers but um those are the three texts and then please circle back at the end for the emoji because we play a game at the end of every episode where we give you an emoji to comment on the instagram post or underneath the tweet and it's a nice way of like i don't know it's a silly game it's a nice way of seeing who's actually reading because I never know who reads or listens to these things. It's nice to know that you're real people out in the world. It's also nice to feel like you're part of an inside group that's, you know, it's a silly little click. Anyway, um, we'll give you the emo- I'll give you the emoji at the end and I'll see you then. In the meantime, I'll let Gab take it away. Okay, bye. This week's review is Thomas Hershorn at Kochi Biennale. It's recorded and published 14th of April 2019 by myself, Gabrielle Del Puente. The emoji summary is like gift, speech bubble with dot 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 in, and then like a really satisfied face. Well, well, well. 
I finally went to a workshop I thought was good slash mildly revolutionary. All you workshop stands can shut up now. When I went to Kochi Biennale a few weeks ago, I went to a critical workshop by Thomas Hershorn. And not gonna lie, I'm mad because I've spent three years trying to be a critic that speaks about art in the opposite way to old white men. And ironically, what I found here is an old white man doing me, but with like better posture and a fairer way of speaking. I cannot cope. <laughs> I am throwing the hat in. Let me haphazardly explain. During the last few weeks of the Biennale, Hershorn's free workshop, Energy Yes, Quality No, invited people to bring something along they'd made to be judged carefully. And it, it could be anything, a film, a song, whatever. Someone I know was going to take a chair they'd painted, for example. The participants sat together with the artist on red plastic chairs arranged in a circle. And he began by telling them what energy and quality meant to him. Those being the two key words in the title of this rolling event. He explained that quality was like the thing art in museums inherently has because it's been given an importance by cultural gatekeepers. You know, the curators, collectors, critics, art historians, and even the market, all colluding for it to be there. But Hershon explained that there's a problem in how we connect with the art there based on its level of quality alone, because quality is always about exclusion. It's about what's not in the museum. This is in, but that one's out. He proposed that instead of talking about art in terms of just quality, we think about its energy instead, because energy is much more unstable and open. And the way he saw it was like, everything in a museum has quality, but for you, it might not have energy. Like, you might not connect with it. Art made by you in your bedroom might not have quality, because it hasn't been validated by the powers that be. But it could hold great energy to someone, it could make them cry or laugh, it could move them. In his own words, I was taking notes as if I know shorthand, he prefers energy because I believe something we are the author of has an energy, or should have an energy I hope. Then I can relate, I can make contact to it. Because there's an energy of some love, pain, sadness, something somebody put in and I can catch it. I must get the energy without, and this is very important, without knowing already the context, all the information, or the excuses of why it's like this and not like this. If I go to the Biennale, there are a lot of artworks. I'm not going there to read all the texts. I want to be touched, involved, implicated with the artwork directly. And sometimes I got it because I could feel the energy, and sometimes not. End quote. Same, Thomas same you go to a new city and go to the big museum there and sometimes feel nothing at all people are crowded around the mona lisa but when you stand in front of it does it even make you feel does it have an energy or is it just exciting because there's lots of people in the room acting excited i felt guilty for not being moved by important artworks before and felt fucking quirky for supporting cool things by people who don't have a name this workshop just settled the tensions for me had everyone reveal their cards. So with these new meanings for energy and quality in the room, participants holding one in each hand, the group were invited to judge the art they had brought with them into the circle. The person that went first played a short film and once it was finished, everyone took their turn saying whether or not they thought it had energy, like literally one by one, yes, yes, no, yes, no, yes. 
Everyone then had to explain why they'd said what they'd said, taking turns to tell us about that small physical experience between you and the art, the beginning and end of that moment, where it took you, how it was informed by all the things you've known before. And this is like another simple effect of the whole process and language around Hershorn's critical workshop, that no one was talking about the person that made the thing. They were simply judging the thing. Critique in this semi-casual setting was not seen as a personal attack, but instead as a stranger offering their own singular experience of the art before them. How it made them feel. What it reminded them of. Why it didn't make them feel anything, or why it might have rubbed them the wrong way. When I was an art student, this was the norm, but since I've left and started writing about art on this website and across Instagram and Twitter, it's all too often I see people freak out that a negative comment means the maker themselves is less than. It was never about them to begin with, and how dare they make it so, to be honest. It was also normal in this workshop to say yes and to have your neighbour say no. There was no expectation for a consensus and often no neat agreement in the air. Like the second item up for judgment was a watercolour of a fish on a white background and one person said energy yes because it reminded them of an idiom their nan used to say in Malayalam about how even a dead fish looks nice so you should always make an effort to look good. The next participant said energy no because they didn't like that it looked like a diagram in a biology textbook. A dead fish on a white contextless background And I think there's a pressure sometimes when criticism takes place in a collective space, i.e. the internet, to like and agree with your followers or following over content, meaning less respect for nuance and difference in opinion over such harmless things. Like, a fish is a fish. It's not the end of the world if you're not living for it. There are a few reasons going to a crit can help make your work better, in my opinion. Reasons I think are worth mentioning here, like, firstly, it's good knowing what randomers think of your work in case it's doing something wildly different than what you had hoped for and feedback can help you get it closer. Also crits are a good stress test like for example if the five people there are saying I wish you would use the colour blue instead of red because they all just prefer blue you at least know how important the colour red to you is if you're not if like you're putting your foot down and telling them no you've tested it and you know it's got to stay. There was a point at the beginning of the whole workshop where Hirshon said he's not afraid of judgment. He said to the group, you are all authors, you brought something he did. It makes you proud, but it gives you responsibility. You must accept the responsibility that somebody wants to judge it. If we're doing something, we must be proud enough to let them judge it. End quote. I appreciate that, and to be honest, I need to keep it in mind more. And so, with Hershorn's framing, judgment was healthy again, nothing was personal again, and everyone was invited to chat about art through their own lens. Personally, I needed this recalibration. Did your teacher ever recalibrate a smart board? Touching smart board pen to the cross at each corner so it knew exactly where it was again, physically and mentally in the world? If you can't remember, or you're not the very, very specific age that small boards were about, you can have another analogy. It was like cracking your back and feeling right in those bones again, lying on the floor, bringing a knee to your chest and pulling it over to the opposite side of your body, twisting till you hear pop, pop, ah. 
I've been telling everyone about this reset approach to art since I went to India. The way white people go to India to find themselves through yoga retreats on the beach. I can't believe I basically fucking did the exact same thing, except it was for art criticism. But these are the things that are important to me. How we talk about art, who feels like they have the right to discuss a painting and giving people the tools to do so. Like I wrote the text on the white pube last year, why I don't read the press release, basically trying to justify why I want my energy to come from the art and not the wall text doing the explaining. If I wanted that, I'd just read an essay. I'm in the gallery because art's the thing that goes beyond written language and I want to see that happen. (sighs) I'm just so glad I went to this. The white pube was been a long exercise in embodied criticism and trying to write about art through owning your own experience in the gallery. I've always used the words aesthetic experience when energy is so much more legible and that legibility is more and more political to me the longer I spend in the art world where I'm suspicious people are barricading themselves into the art world with theory and bad language to keep everyone with an art degree out of here. So yeah, catch me walking around exhibitions now, pointing at things saying energy yes, energy no, like I am finally on a level playing field with the institution because I know which words to use now, energy, quality. I go between them, justifying and reasoning ambivalence and movement, like this physical wave between my feelings. The end. Hello and welcome to this week's review on the white pube. My name is Gabrielle De La Puente and this is a review of Art School, the 2019 game made by Julian Glander and published by Red Deer Games. It's available to play on Mac, PC and Nintendo Switch. And our emoji summary is picture frame, grimace, pencil. <laughs> I was in art school from 2012 to 2016 for a whole foundation and degree. I arrived as a painter and waif child, quiet and alone, away from home, drawing things exactly as they appeared, and accidentally giving myself food poisoning on the regular because I was just that bad at cooking. The years that followed were strange. When I look back, I don't remember having a lot of fun. Instead, I remember becoming a person who had learnt to think in new directions, and it sort of hurt to get to that point. You know when you stretch enough to reach the tight upper limit of your body and the moment stings but afterwards you feel better, lighter, taller? Art school rolled over me, a heavy weight, a constant push forward to a new now we were all being asked to co-create. I cycled through painting, installation, data moshing and film, and eventually script writing and performance. I painted one wall of the studio green, so we had a green screen at our disposal. I went to the library a lot, but I didn't read much of anything. We watched a lot of reality TV on our laptops and worried about the future, and I remember plenty of long bus rides on my own to exhibitions and screenings because I thought that's what I should be doing, especially here in London. And the thing is, I didn't enjoy or understand a lot of what I saw, but I came out the other end with more energy and anger 
more colour in my mind and a thousand ways to describe how it feels to have to be a person in the world. I was very glad I went. In November, the video game Art School, spelled S-Q-O-O-L, was finally ported to the Switch and everybody and their nan sent me the trailer. In the short clip, the tiny, bowl-cut-headed avatar walks around a bright blue world and squeaks a song that ends with the lyric, opening up my brain at art school. I thought we were going to be on the same page, this game and I. I had this overly optimistic vision of a game that would allow players to feel the big stretch of art school for themselves through art and exhibition making, the studio, good conversation and the challenge of new dimensions, but this game was only one of those art making and it barely achieved even that. In practice, the player is given 50 drawing assignments that are delivered by a cartoon character who represents the school's neural network professor. Draw a toy you remember, a bicycle from memory, listen to the room you're in and draw the sounds. The player can search through a few platforms floating in space to find new brushes and colours to add to the toolbox and then use these to create drawings on a small white box on the screen. Once a drawing has been made, we pop back to the professor by walking through door-shaped arches in the different forms that populate the landscape or, more dramatically, by falling off the edge of the world. The fuzzy professor delivers us a grade based on colour, composition, line work and the mysteriously named approach. If you get too low a grade, you have to repeat an assignment. And after the 50 drawings are done, the game finishes and that is the end of that. It was narrow. It felt like art school was setting up the first half of a joke and then running around the corner to hide because it had forgotten how to tell the landing. The art style sets out some bubblegum islands and clouds with scooby string shapes, googly eyes and random designs that break up the colourful bumpiness like a flat house with all its windows and doors staggered behind the facade like a kid's pop-up book or some modern sculpture. But the map is so incredibly small that even the wholesome, safe style gets boring very quickly. The writing in the game feels grounded in the linguistics of Dogue. The avatar is called Froshman, but it is never very funny. And then we're transplanted into the little silly body of that art student and put to work doing assignments 1 to 50 with no drama to the shape of that gameplay, no growth, no magic, no exaltation. I was disappointed, even outside of my own expectations, because it was so thin, so straight. I thought that when we had handed in the final submission, something fun might happen, like the very obvious idea of an exhibition, but we just get taken back to the home screen. We could have chosen our favourite drawings from the 50 or the best assessed, We could have mulled about a room with other students and heard from them. Throughout the game, we could have been offered better conversations with the weird cartoon professor that might have justified 
what often felt like totally arbitrary assessments, the writing of which could have explored aesthetic, quality, craft and form in the light way the game seemed to promise in its overall branding and design. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why I'm given the game ideas, even if they do feel like obvious conclusions in a game about art. Just given the subject, art school wasn't a very creative game. It wasn't very playable either, and it was hard to seriously engage with the drawing assignments amongst the mess. The user interface for drawing is dire, holding ZR and moving a tiny trigger around a small white canvas on the switch screen does not feel very fun at all. I used my finger in the end, but it was still not comfortable. And I am sorry, but the finger felt patronising as well. I suppose PC players might have achieved slightly more accuracy, but all I could think about when I was playing was how much better the game would have suited the DS with its innate stylus. For the record, I did pull out the DS stylus, but the Switch, the Switch screen completely ignored it. But you can buy a Nintendo brand one for the Switch if you so please. I was stuck with what I had and what I had did not feel like it was a good foundation for the creativity the game was asking me to explore. I know people might argue laying down your own restrictions and challenges is a solid way to force out some new ideas and lateral thinking. I am currently doing a Nuzlocke after all, but I don't want to feel creative in spite of a bad user interface. I would prefer a more nicely designed game with some difficulty options on top. Finally, I would just say that lately it's like all the indie games I play on Switch would have been better experienced on PC, and that some finesse is choked out of a game after it has been ported onto the Nintendo Switch. Throughout art school, the camera would get sucked in too close to the avatar. When I was walking through the tighter parts of the map, it would send the game flying into clipping hell. If you aren't familiar with clipping, it's when two parts of a game incorrectly overlap and obscure each other and it is just visually very stressful. Playing this, the screen screen would flash madly and I would lose sense of where I was to even jump out of the the tight squeeze and thus stop the flashing. Either the camera needed to be smarter or the map needed opening up so that the clipping didn't happen in the first place but it would even jump from a conversation with the professor to straight up clipping without me doing anything to bring it on. It drove me a little bit mad. It is like the video game equivalent of standing at the till in Aldi when the checkout person zooms food and drink of all different sizes at you and you have to bag it as quickly as possible and there's a big line and she's also asking you to pay and you're trying to look up and down at the same time and I can't deal. And finally, finally, the font was too small and there was no options to toggle it. The literal smallest font I have ever seen across both games and eye tests. Problems all around, but I'm glad I got to go to real art school and, hey, maybe one day 
someone will give us an art student RPG and we can all dye our hair the same colour in game and chat shit in the studio. I promise, if it happens, I'll review it. Hiya, it is Sunday the 26th of September 2021. I'm ZM and this week's text on the White Pube is a review of a film called Manifesto by Anna Hyotakutu. Um, it was a film I saw at Berwick Film Festival, but this review is also just chatting about art school, to be honest, um, and you'll see why. I'll get straight to it. Um, I remember when I told my parents I wanted to go to art school. My dad started ringing me every day because he thought I was in crisis and acting out. My mum would sit me down at dinner t- at the dinner table and ask me to think about this all reasonably and practically. She took me to, a re- to go see a religious man who told me the stars weren't in the right place for this decision. What's the plan? they'd both ask. To them, art school was somewhere you went to avoid making plans. It was dreamland, a chaotic void, an abyss. I went anyway because I hate being told what to do. I applied to Central St Martins because, I swear to God, that's where MIA went. (laughs) I wanted newness to just pour out of my open mouth, like I was being violently and uncontrollably sick. If art school was a chaotic void, I wanted to enter that void with my hands in the air, screaming. St Martin's was a weird place. I still look back and feel like it was a fever dream, because those were the wildest three years of my life. It had its quirks, and they formed me. Like, every month or so, someone would start a rumour that Kanye West was going to do a secret gig in the platform bar. I remember the day he walked around on a tour of the building and everyone lost their fucking minds. I remember that everyone was keeping an eye out for Antonio Banderas because he was doing a remote learning MA and everyone thought he came in at the weekends to use the library. I remember the drama students walking into the canteen barefoot and Gab whispered to me, if they're late back to rehearsal, they get sent home for the day so they don't even have time to put their shoes back on. I remember finding out that one of my classmates was a literal baron and laughing because he'd seen my tits on a photo shoot in second year. I remember being in the smoking section of a club and a lad came up to me saying, you're in that Pharrell Williams video. And I thought it was a shit chat up line, but he pulled it up on his phone and there I was walking across Granary Square on my way to go get lunch from prep. I remember being sat in the studio watching first dates on someone's laptop when a delegation from North Korea came round on a guided tour. They waved, took pictures of us all, hunched around the laptop and then left. This is God's honest truth. (laughs) I went to Berwick Film Festival a few weekends ago. On the whole, it was unexpectedly chaotic, so I wouldn't know where to start a review of the festival itself. I just had a lovely time on a mini break I wasn't paying for. I went for a run along the beach, I went on a boat trip and thoroughly enjoyed an all-you-can-eat full English breakfast buffet. So 10 out of 10, had a lovely time. 
the programme itself was good, but out of all the films I saw, Manifesto by Anna Hjortogutu was the one that stuck with me. Manifesto is a film about an art school that has recently been absorbed into a large national university. It flicks between interviews with staff and students, wide shot of the wide shots of the new university building and little bits where it follows people around while they narrate problems or ideas to do with the building. The film opens with a scruffy looking middle-aged man in corduroys and a v-neck jumper. He stands in a clean concrete corridor in front of a heavy metal door. He points down at a brick and says, they're quite essential. He shuffles the brick over with his foot to prop the door open. He looks back at the camera like his point has been demonstrated. It's so simple, so beautiful. Two people sit at a desk and show us photos of the old art school building. It was ratty and a bit old, but it had a free open vibe that worked well. A proper art school. One photo has paint splatters across the wall in the background. This is how an art school should look, but if you leave a paint stain like this here in this school, there'll be such a commotion, it isn't allowed. As the film unfolds, it becomes a bit clearer. When this art school was absorbed into the larger, slicker university, something essential began to disappear. Something else also started to emerge. Their old building had a normal door with normal keys and an entrance that wasn't policed. There was a communal kitchen to cook meals and be together in community. Now there's a huge and frightening glass entrance with key cards that can be used to track movement through the building. They now have to buy meals from a cafe as customers rather than active subjects enacting care through cooking. Students speak about the anxiety of feeling like they're being watched in the studio. It made them start acting like they think... It made them start acting how they think an art student should act, rather than just actually being art students. A title flashes up. It reads, We don't recognise our school. I remember walking into the wide open space of CSM's main building for the first time. It was like being in a big old cathedral or the slick corporate headquarters of a massive conglomerate. It was 2013, I was 19, and it scared me so much I nearly cried on the top deck of the bus back home. Everything was chrome, concrete and natural light. The floors were buffered and polished. You couldn't even open the windows because there was a centralised air circulation system. You need key cards to get into the studios and your key cards would only open the doors of the studio you were assigned to. I remember they experimented with opening up key card access to foster a more open cross-curricular environment, but they had to shut it down after a few weeks because someone's laptop got nicked. One time, my friends used their key cards to sneak someone who didn't go to CSM in through the entrance barriers, and they were stopped by security. Their key cards were confiscated for the day, and they were told that if they tried that again, they'd be banned from the building permanently. I went to art school in 2013, and I was one of the first years to pay nine grand a year for the privilege of higher education. 2013 was a weird and sticky time. 
things felt transitional. We were halfway in under the coalition government. We knew things would get bad, but we didn't know the extent of what was to come. CSM was an art school in the stomach of a huge bureaucratic beast, and even though my little certificate says university in big letters, the bones of a radical art school were still in the process of being dissolved in all that bile and acid. We're being taught by tutors who didn't quite believe in the professional development modules they were being made to deliver to us. We were made aware that we were in an arts university rather than an art school, and we quickly realised the gulf of difference between those two things. We saw little exceptions peek through in ways I don't think would be possible anymore. Now the gulf of difference has widened, or maybe it's harder to convey the existence um, of a difference in the first place. I think the exceptions have disappeared too, or it's become harder to interject with them. That same year, in 2013, The Undercommons by Fred Moten and Stefano Harney was published. I can't lie, I still haven't read it, even though I know I probably should. I think the gist of it is, neoliberalism is obviously a head fuck, but specifically, universities have become corporate and professional entities. This means universities are structured and funded to serve the interests of capital and the state. Moton and Harney denounce this professionalisation of knowledge and define the basis for new oppositional solidarities that defy easy categorisation. The Undercommons describes a space away from that capitalist pipeline, inhabited by people who have been denied resources, excluded, fugitive. Moton and Harney use the term maroon communities. The Undercommons feels parallel or related to Spivak's subaltern, and I think it's interesting that academia has so many different terms for the kinds of people that are purposefully kept outside of systems. This fugitive space feels exciting and live because it contains everything that doesn't fit neatly into the institution's bureaucratic structure. So all these split ends, these odd shapes and hangnails just filter across into an underbelly. I don't know what comes next. I don't know what happens once that underbelly is inhabited. I don't know what the new oppositional solidarity, according to Moten and Harney, looks like in practice. But back to the film. Frustrated by the imposition of this new bureaucratic and professionalised structure, the old art school goes underground within the National University. If they take away the communal kitchen, the art school builds a contained mobile kitchen unit disguised as a temporary studio wall. It's complete with worktops, hot plate stove and running water. The camera watches on as they unfold the kitchen, demonstrate how the pipe system works uh, for the sink works and show us the fixtures that keep everything secure and hidden. They fold it out and back in. Now it's just a gallery wall again. If the closed air circulation system means windows can't be opened, they make copies of window keys for everyone and disguise them as USB sticks. There are fake courses for the digital system and real courses on a secret booking system. The real courses are disguised as an artwork and it hangs in the programme coordinator's office, just behind their desk. The fake courses don't actually exist, 
but every, everyone in the higher system thinks they're real. The fake courses have names thick with art speak, descending away from clarity. The non-being of representation, challenging the biopolitical, othering the Swede, snorking the snork. Another administrator casually reveals that the names were made using an online art speak generator, which made me snort out loud in the cinema. He smirks, but it's serious. The university requires courses be taught by practitioners with an MA, but the art school can give you credits from a course called Disgusting Mixtures, taught by three students. Most importantly, the art school elect their own management. There's a fake dean of students, a pseudo dean on paper, who goes to some meetings and sends bullshit reports to keep up appearances. But the real elected rector is the building's cleaner. She maintains an overview and keeps things running, while the admin is just sorted out at arm's length. The bureaucracy that is meant to be so central to everyday operations within this corporate university is just shifted off to the side. They get on with things, away from the prying eyes of the system. Moten and Hani describe the conversion of students and staff from insurgents into state agents. The university is a kind of pipeline for transformation. It takes unstable quantities and makes them solid and bankable. In the three years I was there, I realised St Martin's, the art school, was dead. The place I thought I was going, where MIA and McQueen went, that place didn't physically exist anymore. It only existed in the memory of some of our tutors who would, at times, be complicit in our conspiracies and rebellions. They would say, remember that you're in an institution. Cryptic crossword clue. They'd melt back into the fog they emerged from. Eventually, it clicked. We were in an institution, but we were also being trained up in how to fight back. Nothing as material or significant as the interve interventions in Manifesto, but in small ways. Me and my friends robbed our tuition fees worth in library books. We befriended print technicians and bar staff who'd let us use their staff discounts. We gossiped with our tutors. Best of all, we started writing about exhibitions in our fight back voices and people started to listen to us. My problem with theory is that I always want an example, something to demonstrate it all in practice. While I don't know what Fred Moten and Stefano Hani intend new oppositional solidarity to be, I know what Anna Hjorta Gutu thinks it could look like. Manifesto isn't real. As uncanny as it all looks, it's not a documentary, it's fiction. But in that fiction, it breaks through to the other side of something that could exist. It doesn't pine after the old, dead art school or fall back on romance or nostalgia. Instead, it presents us with a vision of a para-institution running alongside and underneath to the structure that ask, asks for its compliance and complicit participation. It responds with disguise, sleight of hand. It is funny because ultimately this is an art school, not a spy thriller. These people are tutors and, ad and administrators, not moles or actual literal insurgents. <clears throat> but I think that's the fun of fiction. 
He has the ability to expand and stretch out, present us with something new in extremity. A title flashes up. It reads, we have to organise. So imagine this model of a para-institution. Everyone in the main institution who is required to act in compliance with those interests of capital and state is secretly acting against those exact interests. They play pretend bureaucracy, pretend to be state agents, but really they're all double agents acting to undermine the system from the inside. Now, apply it across another institution, one that isn't an art school. Maybe instead of a huge national university, it is a huge national museum. I don't normally believe in one person's ability to change things from the inside, but maybe it's a collective effort. Maybe all the curators, administrators, registrars, etc. They're all in cahoots with the artists and front of house staff to make sure they're able to have a good time, get paid well, do good work and have job stability. Imagine if we all just played fast and loose with the admin and bullshit. If we all decided to game the fucking system. It wouldn't be cheating then, if we all did it. If we were organised, it would just be the way things are. I know I always whip this quote out, badly paraphrase it, but it's just the best wording of something so complex and unwieldy. In Morgan Quaintance's essay, Teleology and the Turner Prize, he locates the specific and loaded value of arts education. A rigorous conceptual training where critical ability is developed through discussion, group critique, lecture and written assessment. It produces critically engaged actors who are aware of the governmental, financial and ideological forces that move to co-opt their output. They produce art that problematizes and draws critical attention to its modes of display and exchange, as well as the culture, society and politics that made that display and exchange possible. I keep whipping that quote out because it's a comprehensive way of saying it can get meta, complicated, sticky, but art schools produce people who know how to handle that complexity and how to make that complexity something potentially dangerous for the interests of capital and the state. I think anyone that went to art school would agree that those were the three weirdest fucking years of their life. We're all bound by the experience. An insider logic that's defined by being part of a structure that repels you while demanding your participation and also requires your dissent. It makes me laugh because I know how this sounds, but I think art school radicalised me. It only works if it changes you. And I think that I was changed for the better. I went into a chaotic void and in Moton and Harney's words, I plopped out the other end of it, a fully equipped insurgent. The film ends with a vision of this para-institutional art school in full swing. When the sun goes down, the students and staff wheel out the mobile kitchen and gather to make a meal together. They stand about, laughing and chatting and singing and being together in community. Capitalism loves alienation. It loves individual as individuals as single units, but 
This is a vision of a social body made up of so many moving parts, all relating to each other, caring and intertwined. Manifesto is a good name for this film because theory is all well and good, but I want examples. A para-institutional model that demonstrates a practical example for new oppositional solidarities in action. It's a mouthful. But now, at least, I know what it looks like. Oh my god, hello. Thank you for staying tuned. That's really sweet of you. You love us so much. Here's the emoji. Please can you give us, underneath on the Instagram post or underneath the tweet, please can you give us the little um, palette emoji. Or the little artist guy. You know the you know the artist emoji, like the the kind of, you know, in the smock with the beret, that guy. Um or girl or person. Um that emoji. The little the person. Um Okay, that's all. Um see you next time. Hope you have a good weekend and that you're having a nice time. Whatever you're doing, enjoy it. Goodbye. Love you. See you later.